All right, Jay, I am ready to go. What X-Men are we talking about today? We're not talking about X-Men, Miles. Okay, okay, X-Factor, Gen X, whatever. Miles, we're not talking about mutants at all today. Wait, I know this week isn't Hawk Talk. I mean, what are we covering if not X-Books? Oh, let's see, we've got some Spider-Man. Cool, cool. An issue of Green Goblin. Uh, Goes with the Spider-Man territory, I guess. And Punisher. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 355 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the outskirts of Onslaught, or possibly the onskirts of Outslaught? It's unclear. I I like the idea of these as sort of the outskirts, because yeah, we're going deep into the weeds this episode, and we're looking at uh, four Onslaught tie-ins, I guess technically three, because the Spider-Man issues kind of go together, that aren't really X-Book related at all, aside from the fact that they're technically Onslaught issues. Yeah, I was looking at the UncannyXMen.net page on Onslaught, which we've referred to a number of times to figure out how the hell to organize this thing, And these are the only four issues listed on that page that you can't click through to get more information on the issues. Like, UncannyXMen.net just doesn't list these four issues in any kind of detail. Well, there's nothing X-Men related in them. And that's something I'm interested to talk about, because what we have here are issues that are existing within a Marvel Universe where a big deal event like Onslaught is occurring— but they don't directly tie in. And I'd love to talk as we go, and maybe a bit at the end, about how well that works. How well that works to make it feel like a cohesive universe versus a cash-in. Yeah, as a primarily X-reader, I see a lot of the X-Men at the fringes of other people's events, but very little in the opposite direction, which made this a really interesting set of books to, to read through. It is, and it is, it's very spider-focused, Uh, And I always forget, and I'm always reminded when we cover any Spider-Man stuff, I love Spider-Man so much. I love him so much as a character. I love reading his comics. They're almost always delightful. And I, meanwhile, am reminded that I just don't care about the Punisher. Uh, Okay, that's also true. It's weird. Like, I mean, these days, the main context I know of for the Punisher is that there was a Netflix show that I never got around to watching, and... Really shitty police do sure love his logo. The first season of the Netflix show is very, very good, save for, like, the last two minutes. I was much, much less impressed with the second season. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, maybe I'll get to it one of these days. My my watch list is very long. But I did watch The Prisoner, Jay. I did watch The Prisoner. You have to grant that. I'm very proud of you. And you watched The Good Place. I did. I think Gallivant is next on the list of your recommendations. Yes! It'll happen. Before we go into these, we should disclaim, we are an X-Men podcast, we are experts, and our expertise is, is, as that implies, primarily focused on X-Men. So while we're going to try to give what background we can on the characters and issues that we'll be talking about this episode, there's a decent chance we're going to miss something. But we'll do our best, and that's going to be extra hard because, Jay, we are in the middle of Onslaught. Do you know what other infamous Marvel event we are also in the middle of? Oh, I do. We are in the dead middle 
of Spider-Man's Clone Saga. Dun dun dun! Yeah, we are. And I don't know, like, opinions seem very strong in the Clone Saga. I don't really have any opinions because this is the only part of it I've ever read. And this part I like. The entirety of my feelings on the Clone Saga, with, with the qualifier that likewise this is the only part of it I've actually read, is that I think more superhero costumes should involve hoodies. Uh, oh yeah, didn't the Scarlet Spider have a, a hoodie like over his bodysuit at one point? Which I think I think he was Ben Riley, but then he wore the spider outfit when he took over as Spider-Man, I think. Yeah, it was the Scarlet Spider costume. Yeah, no, that is that's a damn tight costume. I mean, well, literally, but also, you know, stylistically. Well, it's not. I think it's it's primarily street clothes, isn't it? Uh, versions of it have been? I know for a while it was like a skin-tight Spider-Man-ish suit and then the hoodie sleeveless thing over it. I don't know. I'm not a Spider-Man expert. I played the PS4 games and loved them. I didn't even do that. I live in, I, I live in Forest Hills. Like, that is, that is my claim to Spider-Man expertise. Well, we should nonetheless do our best to explain the deal with Spider-Man, both now and in general, so I have prepared, which is to say adapted, a little song. 90s Spider-Man, 90s Spider-Man, does whatever a 90s spider can, spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies, has a clone, name of Ben, we thought Pete was the clone back then, look out, here comes 90s Spider-Man. So, Spider-Man in general, I feel like we all kind of know his deal. Uh, with great power must also come great responsibility, had an Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben died, has an Aunt May, there's Mary Jane. Y'all know who Spider-Man is. Yeah, yeah, we, we don't really need to go through that again. There have been three Spider-Man franchises, actually I guess just two, that have already done that. What's relevant here is the clone stuff, which actually started way back in 1975 when the villainous Jackal, who I assume is a literal Jackal, I know nothing about the Jackal, uh, created a clone of Peter. And at the end of that story, we thought the clone died, and so did Peter, because he attempted to cremate the clone in a smokestack. The, the dead clone. He, he, knew, he thought the clone was dead at the time. He, he didn't try to throw his living clone into a smokestack. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Peter's judgment's not always great, but he's generally a pretty nice person. Turned out, though, uh, smokestacks are full of smoke, not always fire, and so the clone was alive and secretly wandered the world for five years. He finally showed back up in 1994, calling himself Ben Riley. I assume that's uh, after, respectively, Uncle Ben and Buffy's boyfriend from season four. And a year later, lab tests showed that Ben was the original, and Peter, or the character we thought was Peter for all this time, was in fact the clone. But it turned out at the end of 1996 that Norman Osborn faked all of that stuff just to fuck with Peter. If this sounds familiar to you, the whole, like... Are they the clone? Wait, they're not the clone, but they are the clone. Stuff? Yes, it's exactly like the Cable Strife reveal of Strife weren't a massive jerk. But for now, as of 1996, uh, in the tail end of Onslaught, all is very clear. Ben Riley is the real Peter Parker. Peter Parker is the fake Peter Parker. And at this point, the fake Peter Parker, the one we've been following since 1970-something, uh, his powers have really been on the fritz, so he has mostly retired to spend time with his wife Mary Jane and their unborn child. And that brings us to Amazing Spider-Man number 415. This issue is titled Siege, 
It's written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Mark Bagley, inked by Larry Malstad and Al Milgram, colored by Bob Sharon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And oh boy, at the beginning of this issue, Pete's got that old Parker luck. Aunt May just died, but not really, but he thinks she did. Peter found out he was a clone, not really, but he thinks he is. He lost his powers, he almost died in a fight, although that's what gave him back part of his powers. They're back, but unpredictable. Uh, oh, and his and MJ's taxi just got stopped because of a sentinel traffic cop demanding that mutants and enhanced humans surrender. So the sentinels have also blocked off all traffic to and from, um, I believe, just Manhattan. And this is weird. Why are they doing this? I mean, I know they're doing this because Onslaught told them to, but what is what is this doing for Onslaught? So in the story as written, it's somewhat unclear. Part of it is that the Sentinels are saying that they're going after mutants and enhanced humans. I guess just so nobody challenges Onslaught. But if we go with that design document we read that we talked about way back at the beginning of Onslaught, this could just be Onslaught, like, sowing fear among the populace by taking out any sort of protectors the populace might have. But he's got massive telepathic capabilities. He could just do that directly. Right, but if he sends big scary robots to do it, then the people see their hopes crushed, and thus they have have more despair, and Onslaught can drink that despair like it's ecto-cooler, which I think might have been around in 1996. Maybe it's a symbolic thing, the idea of using sentinels to subjugate humans. I'm sure that's part of it as well. I mean, Onslaught may not be the most emotionally complex entity, but I'm sure he uh, does love him some irony. So let's say the behind-the-scenes book is, is, is the canonical version, and the Sentinels are there to defeat superheroes and thus sow seeds of, of, of despair among humanity. Do they ever actually defeat any superheroes? I mean, temporarily. And I will say, it is mentioned in one of these issues, we'll get to this, that other superheroes are fighting the Sentinels and we don't actually see those stories. So maybe, like... Maybe the new warriors just get stomped. I don't know. This this reads like security theater to me. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with Sentinels. Sentinels are these enormous, terrifying robots. The pinnacle of human bigotry and human innovation merged into one big purple hat-wearing guy. And they're fodder. They always lose. They're never scary. One of the things that I actually do really appreciate in the set of issues that we're looking at today, though is that they're really formidable foes. Like, we're used to the idea of X-Men being able to take down a Sentinel in a page because the X-Men are used to fighting Sentinels. And these are characters who've never needed to before, and they actually give those characters a lot of trouble. I do appreciate that. And part of it, I'm sure, is that the characters we're looking at, Spider-Man, other Spider-Man, and the Green Goblin, like, they're powerful, sure, but they're not X-Men powerful. They're more street-level heroes. There's also the Punisher. He doesn't actually interact with the Sentinels at all, just some guys on jet skis. We'll get there. Yeah, he would definitely lose against a Sentinel. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can have some pretty big guns, but they're probably not going to be big enough to, to blow up a Sentinel. Well, I guess it depends on the guns. I don't know, Forge probably has some that would work. Yeah, but that's not just a matter of size. Mm, true, true. It's the size of the fight and the gun, not the gun and the fight. I don't know. The Punisher would know how to make that innuendo. The other thing I love about all of these issues, starting with this one, is that all of these heroes are just baffled by Onslaught. Mary Jane asks Peter, Who or, or what is Onslaught? 
Uh, well, obviously, MJ, Onslaught is the Magneto-Gundam-looking physical combination of the long-suppressed dark side of Charles Xavier and a weird little goblin. But Spider-Man, on the other hand, responds, Don't know, don't care. Your safety is my only concern. And since Peter is an enhanced human, the Sentinels are, are after him and try try to attack him, and he, he manages to leap and swing away. Okay, I, I object here, because the Sentinels demand that all enhanced humans surrender, and then when they detect that he's enhanced, they just blow up the car he's in. They don't even give him a chance to surrender. Maybe he would have. Yeah, um, I mean, there is a saying about cops, Miles. Oh, true. Just big purple cops. Big purple robot Robert cops. Yep, yep. They all look so bored, too. Like, I love the scenes of them just standing around Manhattan looking slightly lost. I don't remember what issue it was where we did get a scene of them being almost playful in Manhattan, like with one of them being very confused by the Statue of Liberty, but that was fun. Yeah, in in a couple of these, we just see them sort of standing there looking looking a little bit um, bored and confused, which I also really enjoy. <laughs> yup. So, you mentioned that Mary Jane is pregnant. I do not recall Spider-Man having a kid in the 616. Oh boy, so uh, he doesn't as far as I can tell. I read up on this, again, not a Spider-Man reader, I'm probably going to get some of this wrong, but as I understand it, MJ was pregnant, and Norman Osborn hired some lady to steal that baby, and so the lady posed as a waitress and poisoned Mary Jane's gumbo, specifically her gumbo, uh, which forced her into labor, but the baby was stillborn. And the lady still kidnapped it and brought it back to Norman Osborn. Dick move. Also, I'm really surprised that no one has tugged at that dangling p plot thread yet. Well, the thing is, they have, but not in Earth-616. In Earth-982, the baby, it turns out, did survive and was eventually reunited with her parents. And this baby became May Mayday Parker, who is Spider-Girl, and then Spider-Woman. I haven't read Spider-Girl, I believe most of it's by Tom DeFalco, and I've heard it's just delightful and lovely. I've read a little bit and found it pretty charming. Yeah, you know, I really like Tom DeFalco's comics. Like, they're a little, I don't know, old-fashioned seeming, but they just make me happy. So Peter and MJ are swinging through the city, um, pausing to help civilians as they go. Steady, Mary Jane. Only a few more blocks. Okay, handsome, but don't blame me if our child has an unnatural fondness for heights. Oh, he'll become a famous aerialist. Or she could be an airline pilot. Jay, I love them together. Or even previously together, like in the aforementioned PS4 game. Like, their dynamic is just so good. They clearly enjoy each other so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter realizes, as the enhanced human in the situation, he should probably lead the Sentinel away from his wife and their unborn child. Um, due to a coloring error as he does this, though, it looks like he just rips off his shirt and jacket and jumps away shirtless. Is, is he Angel? Is he Warren Kenneth Worthington III? Or is he perhaps Dalton, as played by Patrick Swayze? Oh, man. Uh, if he was, he'd probably rip the throat out of a Sentinel at a climactic scene. They've got kind of similar haircuts. Yeah, that's true. Dalton had a very 90s comics haircut. Yeah, he did. Well, pain don't hurt, thankfully. So Peter's fine, despite how violent this all gets, until his powers crap out while he's tussling with the Sentinel. I want to talk about something the Sentinels do in, in this issue, and, and the, the following one that I absolutely love. 
Like whatever they're going to do, they say how long it's going to be before they do it. So they're like four seconds until critical attack or whatever, which is so strategically terrible, but they keep doing it. Oh, man. Uh, Do you remember our old housemates, Kat Trinket, who whenever she was going to do something she knew she wasn't supposed to would meow first? Yes. Yes, I do. And, like, eventually she learned that uh, that would give people a chance to tell her no, so she would just meow and then do it right after. So I can imagine the Sentinels being, like, critical attack in 5-3-3-1 right now. I I don't know if they have the self-awareness to manage that. Yeah, probably not. Um, But the Sentinel does not continue its attack because when Peter's powers crap out, he's no longer an enhanced human. And so the Sentinel just sort of, like, techno-shrugs and flies away to... I don't know, go punch Stiltman or something. So that's what's going on with Spider-Man. But as we know, these comics have a lot of important characters. We've seen Spider-Man. We've seen MJ. Who we have not seen yet is the guy that runs the Daily Bugle, where the Sentinels are currently ripping out the electrical system. I guess Onslaught knows that democracy dies in darkness, but one person who's got a lot of opinions is our favorite, favorite mustachioed curmudgeon, J. Jonah Jameson. I'm not going to lie to you people. The situation outside is bad and getting worse. I realize many of you are worried about your families. Go home if you think you must. I won't think any less of you. And, uh, your paychecks won't be docked. I'm staying. No metal monster can stop the Daily Bugle from reporting the news. Our next edition is going out even if we have to handwrite and personally deliver every copy. If you're sticking around, grab an old manual typewriter from the storage closet and punch keys. We've got a newspaper to publish. Like, I know J. Jonah Jameson is kind of an antagonist in Spider-Man, but I think he's my favorite Spider-Man character. As we saw in Inferno, he's great in a crisis. He is, and you know, he really does believe in journalism. He just has a bit of a blind spot when it comes to threats and or menaces of the spider variety. It's true. Also, his son's a werewolf. In space. Yep. Because he found a magic necklace, right? Comics! Huzzah! Well, outside, the Green Goblin, that Spider-Man villain, is actually engaging that Sentinel who's attacking the media. We'll get to that, in fact, in a Green Goblin comic. This is where it's mentioned that the New Warriors and Daredevil are also fighting Sentinels. We don't actually see them do so, though, and I don't know, I kind of dig that. It makes the crossover feel bigger without derailing ongoing storylines in those books. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think that's a lot of what the issues we're looking at this episode do. Yeah, no, I think uh, all four of these issues actually work very well as books that are clearly in the middle of big stuff going on in Manhattan, since like half the Marvel Universe is in Manhattan, without having to deal with hate goblins. So MJ volunteers to proofread, but Peter's going to go out to where the action is, uh, nominally to take photographs, and he heads out. So that's one Spider-Man. What about the other? Um, Well, Ben Riley is experimenting with coffee shop AUs right now. Is that a thing? Coffee shop AUs? Did you not know that that's a thing? I don't know. I, I don't really read fan fiction, but I guess it is, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm into that. Damn, I can't believe, like, I feel like that's an idea that has extended outside of fandom, though, like, that, that gets, gets written about or, or mentioned offhand pretty regularly. I mean, the main thing I've heard of is the 
but there's only one bed trope. Only one bed and a coffee shop. And a tiny coffee shop. And a trombone. And a class of second graders. You know, sometimes I worry that the only people that get all the jokes in our podcast are us. I, I feel like there must have been other people who obsessively listened to the ad CD that came with You Don't Know Jack the Ride. And watch that old Clerks cartoon, which was great. Well, I was referencing um, the, the daily meditation from, from You Don't Hear Jack. Oh, yeah, yeah. We just have references sliding one into another. A beautiful stream of incomprehensibility. It's like that one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation whose title I can never remember. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Anyway, Ben Riley. So, Ben looks like Peter, but he's blonde. He dyed his hair blonde to differentiate himself a bit back when he thought was he was the clone, but it's still blonde, I guess, to help us identify who's who as readers. I mean, it's still okay if you're the original to do things to disambiguate yourself from the other person. Like, it's not like the clone has to go, like, slink away and, and like live in a basement somewhere. I mean, he probably does because he can't afford rent anywhere else because it's New York. But my point here is that the character known as Peter Parker has still grown up and lived the life of Peter Parker. And Ben Riley has done, I have actually no idea what Ben Riley has done, but presumably he's done other things and now works in a coffee shop or hangs out in a coffee shop or something, has, has some kind of relationship to a coffee shop. And there's there's no reason if if he is he is the original template that he shouldn't continue to have blonde hair if he likes having blonde hair. You know, it's kind of a good look, I gotta say. So, since looters are ransacking the neighborhood, it is heroing time, and there's this scene where the owner of the coffee shop, I assume, tells her customers and family who are hiding in the coffee shop's basement about being a kid during the Cold War about hiding under her coat at school when there was an air raid drill and hoping that their guardian angels would protect them. And as she's talking about this, there's a montage of Ben suiting up in his spider suit, and it's actually kind of inspiring. Like, even the page at the end where he's swinging through New York and the owner's face is sort of in the clouds behind him, continuing to narrate. Like, it's Tom DeFalco. I think I've talked about this in previous episodes. Like, his work can be kind of hokey, but that doesn't make it less effective. Yeah, it's really sincere. It is sincere. That is the word for DeFalco's comics, at least in this era. So off Ben goes and quips and fights a sentinel to save a bunch of folks and, after a hell of a battle, wins. One down, a few thousand to go. Which brings us to Spider-Man number 72. That is adjectiveless Spider-Man, like adjectiveless X-Men. The world's gone mad. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Williamson, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Dude, John Romita Jr. in this issue? Wow. Yeah, I think he's, he's great on this book. I was never really a fan of John Romita Jr. during his early X-Men run, although I've become more of one, but something about his style works so goddamn well for a Spider-Man book. Well, he's been on Daredevil for a fairly long time at this point. And he's got that sort of gritty street-level feel down really well. And I'm not normally good at identifying the effect of inks on a comic, despite how many comics I have, I guess, reviewed in this podcast with you. But the inks here are outstanding with Ramita. Like, Al, uh, Al Williamson is the inker, and he's got these really heavy shadows that 
super help with the moodiness of John Romita Jr.'s uh, shading-heavy style. So it's just this really, it's almost like a Mike Mignola book, but with more lines. Like, everything is just deep blacks and and dread and intensity, and it's great. I was actually going to say it reminds me a little bit of early Frank Miller. Uh, you know, I can totally see that as well, absolutely. I guess we're just talking about artists whose art we like at this point but yes yes they all do have a somewhat comparable style no i mean i it, it's very specifically reminded me of that okay well it's really good is the point so peter's running around snapping pictures of the sentinel infested city he uh, wanted to get some distance as we mentioned since uh he didn't want to have mj or the daily bugle be a target if his powers came back and the art here shows the city just dense with sentinels like they're taking up most of the street surface area and this might not be the most realistic thing in the world like they'd have trouble getting past each other they'd have to hover over each other's heads or something this is is what finally triggers your your suspension of disbelief i'm just saying like it's uh they're really not suited to dense city streets they're just too goddamn big they are very very large and that does show just the overwhelming power of this invasion force. The fact that the Sentinels are unfeasibly stacked into Manhattan. Like, there's more Sentinel than City at this point. Are they, are they stacking like hawks? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, they're, they're like hawks in every way. They're, uh, you know, Unit 34B17, actual hawk. I, I feel like you're, you're lying to me, Miles. Hey, like I said, I don't really know Spider-Man stuff. Which, I guess, extends to any fact I say in this episode. Ha! I'm immune. But Sentinels are X-Men stuff. I mean, most Sentinels are. Not these. These are Hawks. Okay. Anyway, current Spider-Man Ben Riley swings by fighting, you know, Sentinels. Peter decides to help, and it goes badly. That's right, as soon as he yells to the Sentinel... It recognizes him and immediately upgrades its objective from capture to kill. So Pete and Ben help each other escape, bantering all the way, and we talked about how Peter and MJ's dynamic is fun. Peter and Ben's dynamic is also really fun. Yeah, they are remarkably well-matched. Like, I would have liked to have seen more of them as, like, a pair of, adventure, a pair of adventures or a pair of heroes together. Maybe we should read more Clone Saga. But yeah, like, Peter's got this sort of sardonic sense of humor. I mean, after all, he just found out he's a clone, his life is a lie, and now he's not Spider-Man anymore. But he's good-natured about it. And, like, Ben is being sort of sarcastic about it, but he's not really being mean at all. They're just sort of, like, playfully jabbing at each other with words. Yeah, they're, they're very clearly kind of on the same wa wavelength here. I mean, I guess it makes sense. They're clones. They're not both clones. Well, I mean, they're cloned from one another. One is cloned from the other. They're not cloned from one another. You, you must be thinking of Longshot and Shatterstar, man. Oh, well, that is a much simpler situation, it's true. Anyway, a frzzat knocks Ben out as he's carrying Peter as they swing through the city. So Peter just grabs onto Ben's web shooters on his unconscious wrists to create a web parachute to uh, parachute them down into a smokestack. Right on. It kind of reminds me, actually, of the most recent issue of X-Men in, like, modern continuity, as we're recording this, where uh, Laura Wolverine gets knocked out, and so Polaris just magnetically uses Laura as a weapon. I think Jean's done that with um, Cyclops' eye blasts a few times, too. I, definitely in X-Men The Hidden Years, and possibly a few other times as well. Oh yeah, but I think magnetically using Laura Kinney as an adamantium blender is funnier. 
So if, if this setting sounds familiar, you may recall that a smokestack was in fact where Peter dumped Ben when he thought Ben was dead. And when Ben finally wakes up, this fact is not lost on either of them. Where Ben points out, you know, smokestacks don't actually set people on fire, at least not in the Marvel Universe. And Peter says, hey, yeah, he was kind of traumatized at the time. Give him a pass. I mean, fair enough. So Ben is still winded from all the zappy zappy and offers Peter his web shooter so Peter can escape. And Peter's like, no, you need to be okay too. Let's each take one. And when the Sentinels find Ben after Peter leaves, sure enough, Peter, with that web shooter, comes back and decapitates a Sentinel with a web rope like it's a freaking piano wire, and then smashes two other Sentinels in the head with his new giant Sentinel head morning star that he has. The fight scenes in these comics are really creative. Like, Peter Parker has a relatively straightforward power set, and I always enjoy when people find, like, cool, wacky ways to demonstrate how he can use those powers. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And Romita, again, does that beautifully. This is, I, I feel like the skill set that makes you a good Spider-Man artist is so similar to the skill set that makes you a good Daredevil artist. Because both ways, what, you really, what you're really drawing when you're drawing fight scenes are complex ac acrobatics. Absolutely, yeah. And also, like, swinging physics. I feel like any artist that's good with Spider-Man and Daredevil could also do a good Michelangelo from the Ninja Turtles with his nunchucks. Well, I, I can't speak so much to the Ninja Turtles there, but also sort of treating the city as, as a character in and of itself, having, having those really lush, really detailed, really textured kind of toothy backgrounds. Oh, yes, very much so. And yeah, as they, they go their separate ways, Peter tells Ben, I've got to tell you something, Ben. I know you're the real guy, and I know I don't have your experience, but I was good at this. Ben replies, You'll get no argument from me. And thanks. And so, having each rescued one another in both directions, they agree they're going to fight side by side against Onslaught. They're going to help the Avengers and the X-Men and the Fantastic Four as brothers. I, again, really like how well they seem to get along. Yeah. Uh, they, um, they don't, though. They, they don't actually show up in the Onslaught finale at all. I guess that's probably for the best, because then they would have ended up in Heroes Reborn, and Rob Liefeld probably would have drawn them weird. So we've covered two Spider-Man issues, and now it's time to move on to traditional Spider-Man antagonist, the Green Goblin, except this Green Goblin is a little bit different. This Green Goblin is not an Osborn at all. He's a Yurik. Phil Yurik is the nephew of Daily Bugle reporter... Ben Yurik, and he is just a regular teen. Well, he was, until he followed his uncle on a job into Oscorp, the company of, of course, Norman Osborn, who was at the time, secretly, the Green Goblin. But when Phil got there, he accidentally took a bath in the Goblin formula and found a set of Goblin armor, thus being much more Goblin-y than he was when he entered the building. I don't understand why Osborne just left that stuff lying around. Like, the goblin formula, the goblin armor. You know, y you'd think that you'd put those somewhere real safe, maybe in, like, separate buildings? Or just, you know, a drawer labeled goblin stuff. Do not open. Parentheses. Unless you're a goblin. Exactly. I wonder if Magneto's hate goblin could wear the goblin armor and become an even more effective goblin. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's intangible. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it could be like, uh, what, what's his face? Uh, the guy from Hellboy who's just gas in the suit. Johan. Yeah, Johan. Could be like that, but, uh, a goblin. Oh, and its codename could be Goblin Goblin. Goblin Goblin! 
And if the Goblin Goblin went to a restaurant and someone asked what the Goblin Goblin was doing there, someone could say, Goblin Goblin be Goblin. Indeed they could. So anyway, as a new significantly less evil Green Goblin, Phil fought crime. While still holding down a journalism internship at the Daily Bugle. Ooh, poor kid. Well, I mean, things were going pretty okay, uh, until this issue and everything that happens in it. This brings us to Green Goblin number 12, Even the Brave Can Fall, written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Josh Hood, inked by Derek Fisher, colored by Greg Wright, lettered by Jim Novak. This is actually the second-to-last issue of the series. I always feel weird for comics that either have to start or end in a crossover of somebody else's book. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is a rough issue. This is, um, I, I don't know if Josh Hood was the regular artist, but um, I am I am deeply, deeply underwhelmed by his work here. So I looked Josh Hood up, and he did a handful of Marvel issues in 96 and 97, this, some Venom stuff, some other stuff. Uh, but he has been an active artist since then in other comics, and he's actually gotten pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, you can check out his website. He's got so much stuff on it. There's so much stuff. I just kept scrolling. So anyway, here in the comic, uh, Ben Yurick is is down hitting the bricks, um, reporting, trying to find what's actually going on, and his nephew Phil is tagging along to help. Was it weird for you to hear a character who was not Uncle Ben be called Uncle Ben? I mean, he is Uncle Ben. He's he's Phil's Uncle Ben. I know, but like two significant Uncle Bens in one spider sub-universe? I almost wonder if the only reason Phil Urich is a character, like the nephew of Ben Urich, was just so that somebody else could say Uncle Ben and there could be like thematic connections. I, I can't say. It could be that it was just sort of generally overlooked. I mean, I'm thinking of the number of characters whose whose names are variations on Jan or Jen. Hmm, true. Jen Jan the Goblin Goblin. Who's Goblin? So, Phil is not planning to join in the fight, as he narrates in the captions. It seems like every spandex jockey in the city is mobilizing against these monsters. Everyone except me. I ain't risking my precious neck on some hopeless cause. Suicidal, I'm not. So yeah, this is a guy who's kind of a reluctant superhero. Like, his main thing with being the Green Goblin, it becomes clear over this issue, is that it's fun. He gets to do some cool stuff. He gets to fly around and laugh real loud. Yeah, yeah, he's got this thing called the lunatic laugh that is one of his powers. And when he uses it in serious situations, it's some, some, some dissonance. I really like this character. My knowledge of him is extremely limited. Like, I know him from this. I know him from Runaways and the miniseries that spun out of it. And that's about it. But here, he's almost the anti-Nate Gray. Like, they both have similar hair, uh, save for Nate's white streak. But Phil is underconfident. He's reluctant to get involved in things. Like, he just wants to keep it simple. He knows that he's nothing all that special. Alas for Phil, there are no bystanders in a crossover event, and the Sentinels attack the Bugle. And Phil decides, eh, I guess I might as well go try to be helpful what with my having superpowers and stuff. That's, I think, possibly because when he showed up and decided not to be a superhero, but said he wished he could help, they had him uh, make a bunch of copies. So yeah, this is the same scene we saw in that Spider-Man issue, just from a different perspective, which I think is kind of fun. Right, and he's also going to mention you know, the same other heroes, uh, the New Warriors and Daredevil, outfighting the Sentinels that um, were brought up in, again, the Spider-Man issue, coincidentally also by Tom DeFalco. So yeah, rather than make copies, he's going to go out and, and fight Sentinels, because J. Jonah Jameson is such a bad boss that he has driven like half his employees to vigilantism just to get out of that newsroom. 
Well, that's a really good point. You got Spider-Man, you got Venom, you've got the Green Goblin. You've probably got some others. I don't know much. Yeah, I'm sure there are others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, the it goes poorly. Like, we know that the Green Goblin fights the Sentinel that's attacking the Bugle, and the Sentinel is actually a genuinely effective, overwhelming foe if you're Phil the Goblin. Yeah, Phil the Goblin is massively, massively outmatched. Uh, he only manages to save himself from getting completely sentineled by ditching the mask that triggers his powers. Yeah, he's only spared when he literally throws away his agency as being anything beyond normal. Right, the mask is what gives him his powers. It's what enables him to, to use whatever the Goblin formula did to him. It makes him strong and fast. I'm really confused by the, the general, like nature of how how green goblin works but fortunately that's not actually important you just need to know that he gets his power he has to have the mask to have his powers yeah and then in the true spirit of spider-man characters uh goblin phil retreats into a miasma of self-doubt there's this crisis of confidence and it just keeps flashing to his judgmental family to his successes and failures it actually really works i mean this is him starting to wonder if he's actually good at anything, if there's anything special about him, or if he just happened to get lucky and find the mask. But it also gives any X-readers who are jumping into this portion of the crossover, into this tie-in, an idea of just who the hell this character is. And I think it's actually done in a very concise, efficient, and organic manner. And who this character ultimately is, is a hero, because he decides, screw it, he's going to put his mask back on, face his fears, and help out. I never intended to be a hero. Never wanted the hassles or the responsibilities. But this mask belongs to me. I'm tired of being a loser. I'm through with being a quitter. No matter what the consequences, my name is Philip Yurick, and I am the Green Goblin. Uh. And then he does the lunatic laugh, and I know it's, it's supposed to be dramatic, but it's also the lunatic laugh, and it's just this goblin cackling maniacally, and I kind of love it. I don't know, maybe it's because it's December, but I just keep thinking of the lunatic laugh as being a Santa Claus-like ho-ho-ho, which just makes me think of Santa Claus as a teenage vigilante, and I would like to see this movie now, please. Hallmark, or uh, whoever, make it happen. I'm sure Netflix is already working on it. Oh. Yeah, probably. So, Phil the Goblin finally does manage to take down a Sentinel, and he does it at pretty significant cost. He has to blow up his glider, um and basically crash it into the Sentinel. And that also wrecks his mask, probably ending his reign as the Green Goblin. It is really nice to, for once, see the Sentinels as actually being dangerous and not just, like, the big robot fodder. Yeah, agreed. I think that's pretty consistent in Spider-Man as well, and I really appreciated that. As, as I mentioned before, like, the X-Men are good at fighting, fighting Sentinels because the X-Men have to fight Sentinels all the damn time. Like, most of these guys have never encountered one. Yeah, yeah, they fought other giant robots, but not these. And there's a great last panel. As we see Phil with the grinning mask partially shattered, we see his serious expression on his exposed eye and mouth through the broken gaps. Things are gonna go badly in the final issue, though. He gets downsized from the bugle. He travels on a bike wearing a ski mask instead of having a glider and the real mask, and he's saved from a losing fight against muggers by Spider-Man who doesn't even notice him. And then his bike gets stolen. Oh, man. So, 
If there is an opposite of like the hapless floppy haired teen, it's probably Frank Punisher. I'm, I'm sorry, I mean Frank Castle, the Punisher. I'm just going to keep calling him Frank Punisher because it's funny. Frank Punisher, yeah. He's a cold-blooded vigilante killer, lost his family to a mob hit, and vowed to make crime pay. And he mostly makes crime pay with a whole lot of really, 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 really big guns. So, the Punisher. Like, I'm sure there are lots of Punisher fans listening to this episode, and I do want to clarify, I'm sure there are good and even great Punisher comics, but... I don't know about you, Jay. I've just never really been able to connect to the character. Yeah, I think it's really, really hard to divorce the Punisher from his cultural context, first of all. So that's that's a big one. Um, I think at his best, he's a really, really interesting examination of toxic masculinity. I think that's something that the, the first season of the show handles absolutely beautifully. And that he can be a really interesting character. I think a lot of the time he's not. But yeah, he is, he is in general not my guy. Legit. Well, thankfully, this issue is wacky. Yeah, this, this issue is 130% is nonsense, and that 130% nonsense is called Manhattan Onslaught, and written by John Ostrander, penciled by Tom Lyle, inked by Robert Jones, colored by John Callis, and lettered by... You want to say it this time? Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So... The Punisher apparently had just an explosion of books in the early 90s. He's down to only one at this point, but for a while there was Punisher Volume 2, Punisher War Zone, Punisher War Journal, Punisher 2099, Punisher Year One. Like, that's a lot more Punisher than I would think that there'd be call for. Is that more books than Spider-Man had at the time? I, I, I don't know how many books Spider-Man had. Oh, well, well, it's a lot anyway. That's a, that's a lot of Frank Punisher. So, uh, this, this issue has a helicarrier on its cover, and we all know what helicarriers mostly do, right? They crash! Yeah, so, uh, it, it also helps that the cover says, you know, the fall of the shield helicarrier. But yeah, like, every time it's a really big deal, and you'd think they'd be used to it by now. Oh yeah, it's like, so I watch a lot of kung fu movies, and every time you see a restaurant, it is gonna get fucked up by people fighting in it. Every single time. You would think that anybody who lived anywhere near a kung fu movie... Uh, would just not open a restaurant. There's, there's no point. Or maybe they just have really good insurance policies. But then you'd think the insurance companies wouldn't sell those policies. Everyone's gotta eat. Briefly. Frank Punisher tells us which way the wind is blowing. War Journal 2, Entry 22. Manhattan's held captive. Everything is in confusion. You need a bigger gun. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, he's got this war journal, but it's in the present tense. It's just the narration from the books, and that raises some questions. Oh, right. Like, is he just writing it down frantically between panels? Does he have a little tape recorder like Dale Cooper talking to Diane in Twin Peaks, or...? Well, the captions are typed out, so we know he's not just, like, jotting it down between panels. I, I do love the idea that he has a secretary, though. Just following him around, like, in their own less elaborate skull t-shirt? Boswell to his Johnson? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of this. Frank Punisher has all the guns, and Frank Punisher's secretary just has, like, a typewriter on wheels. I feel like if he does do the Dale Cooper thing, he probably just sends all the recordings to Micro. Oh, I don't know who Micro is. Uh, so he's also in the series. Actually, he's in the series, and his secret hideout is the set from Sneakers, although they don't mention that, it's just the same set. Okay, that's amazing. Uh, he, is, he is a computer guy who, who works, works closely with Frank Punisher at times. 
But I really enjoy how completely baffled Frank is by the whole situation. Yeah, we're spending so many episodes on Onslaught, Frank doesn't need that much time. There's this being called Onslaught. No one seems to know too much about him, except that he seems to be a mutant and that he has... plans. Don't all the bad guys? You know, Jay, I think you and I have kind of delivered that same information, but with like thousands of times more words. Yeah, yeah, um, Frank prefers to let his guns do the talking. Now, in addition to the Sentinels, there is a helicarrier hovering above New York. It apparently showed up after the massive EMP. And it is it is equipped with all of the higher-ups of S.H.I.E.L.D. These days, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is being run by G.W. Bridge, assisted by the Contessa and Dum Dum Dugan, and they are running S.H.I.E.L.D. because apparently the Punisher killed Nick Fury. So I looked this up, and I guess the Punisher was brainwashed by a bad guy named Spook at the time. Excuse me? Yep, yep. And uh, it's fine, though, because it turns out that it wasn't Fury, it was just a life model decoy. I'm still stuck on the fact that someone decided to give that name to a character. Like, that is not an obscure racial slur. Oh, uh, I actually didn't know it myself. I just thought it was like a ghost guy. Literally, connotatively, yes. But yeah, I'm, I'm, anyway. Well, in that case, I'll just say, damn it, comics. Yeah. So... S.H.I.E.L.D. decides they're going to take on the Sentinels, and to do this, they they release paragliding troops who look just overjoyed to be there. Like, I have never seen cannon fodder look this enthusiastic. Yeah, they're wearing these wingsuits, just gliding around and occasionally having mustaches. It's wonderful. So the Sentinels do what Sentinels do and retaliate, um, and they shoot the helicarrier, which promptly crashes into, I assume, the East River, and Frank sees this and pauses from his usual business of shooting looters or whatever the hell he's doing to go dive in the river after it, I guess, because he's he's like, oh no, that someone's gonna try to salvage that. And indeed, they do. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't really have expected that to happen that quickly, but um, there is there is a group on the scene immediately called the Junkyard Dogs, led by a guy named Rashid Hammer Jones. And I checked to see if these guys are like regular Punisher antagonists or something, because it really, it seems like they should be, based on the fact that they have names and we're, it feels like we're supposed to be familiar with them. No, no, this, this, this issue is their first and only appearance. Well, it's a memorable one. And the Junkyard Dogs are, I guess, a maritime salvage gang? Yeah, yeah, they have jet skis, and they immediately go after the helicarriers so they can, you know, like, become big-time jet skiers. One of them is dressed like an old-timey pirate, Miles. It's true! No, they have a, a lot of really varied outfits. Um, like, some of them are bikers, some of them are pirates. Uh, so here's what I'm thinking. That means that their mode of locomotion makes sense, because a jet ski when you think about it, is the exact halfway point between a motorcycle and a pirate ship. It's the literal halfway point if they're on the way to a pirate ship from where they parked their motorcycles. Oh, that's true! Maybe Bloodstream and his pirate ship are, like, a little bit beyond the helicarrier, and we just don't see them because of the way the panels are drawn. Hmm. Now, you can't let the secret weapons on a helicarrier fall into the hands of, of, of such miscreants as the junkyard dogs. So GW Bridge sets the auto-destruct um, while everyone else pulls guns, including Frank Punisher, who I guess has been lurking underwater until this point? Uh, yes, he can hold his breath a lot using a specialized gun. Everyone shouts a lot, and everyone shoots a lot, and then the good guys jump off and the helicarrier explodes. And, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. arrests the surviving junkyard dogs and takes over their base? 
Hey. Yeah, I, I just, I, this gang is so <laughs> baffling because first of all, like, they're, they, I guess they just, they just lurk by the river waiting for things to explode so they can violently salvage them. That's their thing. To be fair, this is the Marvel Universe, and I feel like waiting by any given river in or around New York City for things to explode, like, you don't have to wait long. Yeah, but half the time you're gonna, you know, trawl through and just end up with, like, a hypothermic daredevil. Hey, do you know what a hypothermic daredevil goes for in the black market? It's a lot. So... Once, once this is all resolved, um, everyone's about to go their separate ways, but it turns out G.W. Bridge has a job for Frank Punisher, and he tells him, you know, you, you owe S.H.I.E.L.D. because you did kill Nick Fury, after all, and Punisher's like, yeah, I guess I do. And that's the end of the issue. We're not going to cover the next arc, but Frank meets Carl, the executioner, and they fight a fake mutant liberation front run by Simon Trask of Humanity's Last Stand. Whoa, 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 why the fuck are we not covering this? I don't know, maybe we should. I don't know if it's any good. I kind of want to. You know, maybe if we ever want to do a fill-in, we can do Frank and Carl fight Simon and some jerks. Right on. So, now that we're through all of these, what, what do we think of these, these four issues as, as Onslaught tie-ins? You know, I think these four issues actually just about perfectly represent what an Onslaught Impact book should be. I wish we got more issues like this. I particularly appreciate how clearly the characters seem to recognize that they're trapped in the periphery of someone else's crossover event. Right. But it works to have significant characters in the periphery because that really does show just how chaotic and disruptive what Onslaught is doing is toward everyone. As far as the individual issues, I don't know. I mean, I liked them all overall, but did you have any favorites or not favorites? Mm, I think the Spider-Mans were probably the strongest. I agree. Not necessarily because they tied in better, but just because they were genuinely solid issues. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the creative teams definitely helped considerably with that. But I, I think they were solid, and I think, I think Spider-Man is also a character who's really well-suited to being on the periphery of someone else's big crossover event and still really carrying a story. Absolutely, yeah. So, I know we went back and forth on whether we should even cover these issues, but I'm really glad we did. I think that was your suggestion, Jay, so thanks, good call. I like the weird stuff. Yeah. So we've got crossover events, and you listeners have questions. Laudro asks via Patreon, Sometimes when I'm using my leaf blower, I think, hey, this might be the closest I ever get to telekinesis, moving these big piles of leaves with a gesture of my hand. Do you have anything in your lives that you do that mildly replicates superpowers? So this is a weird one. I sleep in earplugs, and I wear chapstick so my lips don't get chapped while I sleep, and I keep them in the same spot on my bedside table, and so I've gotten very, very fast at reaching out to grab them and put them back every night, and it kind of feels like super speed, and saying that out loud sounds real dumb, but it feels awesome, so I don't care. Damn it. Also, driving a stick shift makes me feel like I'm some kind of strange technopath making machinery do wacky fancy things. Oh, so for me, it's really just automatic doors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can just be telekinetic every time you're near one. I will occasionally just, like, gesture with my hand as one is opening and be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Being at a convention, uh, having been to many, many conventions and often having been in a hurry, and so having learned how to quickly dodge in and out of crowds to get from point A to point B kind of has a super speed feel to it as well, or super agility, perhaps. 
Super something. Super something. Duck Orsino asks on Tumblr, In your past coverage, you've mentioned how inkers and then colorists would have to eat everyone else's deadlines. How has that changed now that so much of comics production has moved to digital? So digital production is definitely the experience I'm drawing from when I talk about that. Although my understanding is that it's pretty much always been an issue. So regardless of the media, whether it's physical or digital, the the main problem is that that colors and inks, and, and also letters, are stages of comics that can't start until other stages are done, and they're also the last stages that need to happen before the final production deadlines, so they get the worst of the crunch from both sides. Oh, unfortunate. We should give those people more respect. And more money. Yes, more respect, and more respect in the form of money. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's see what's up on the periphery of Onslaught, the far periphery, with the angry Clarmontian narrator. Okay, look, Natasha. I'm, I'm not saying that you and Mark Adler are useless. I'm sure there's something you're, you're both very good at. It's just that, you know, under current circumstances, both the two of you and your, uh, theoretical skills are entirely irrelevant. Why don't you just go play outside or something? And the mic there goes to... a sentinel. Commence speech in five, four, three, two, one. By order of Onslaught, this podcast is under martial law. All supporters are ordered to cease resistance and submit for mandatory gratitude. Censors confirm the presence of patrons. Quarry has been targeted and will now be thanked in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Targeting subset of listener category, Michael. This student's programming dictates that Michael Mole and Michael the Street shall receive appreciation. Do not resist targets. Accept the inevitability of the thanks provided through this unit by Onslaught. Onslaught is grateful, and none are capable of altering that state. Commence scary words in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Submit. Submit targets. Commence outro in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air ad-free, and with our powers not fritzing out too much, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Onslaught reaches its finale. And yet, somehow, still doesn't end. (laughs) 